I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. The 2016 Worldwide Threat Assessment identified the interconnectivity of devices and the increase in cyber incidents as significant areas of concern and ones that leave the nation particularly vulnerable to attack and catastrophic ramifications. Five years later, the 2021 assessment continues to identify cyber as one of the largest threats. In the 2020 National Preparedness Report, communities cited the need to update cybersecurity plans. However, they have low confidence in their assessment of current cyber capabilities and are concerned about cyber's expanding role in systemic risk. Cyber attacks have become a daily occurrence. Solar winds and Colonial Pipeline have grabbed some of the most recent headlines because they had the most direct impact on our daily lives. But it's happening all the time to schools, hospitals, businesses, government agencies, and infrastructure providers. This validates those initial assessments from 2016. When a fire, earthquake, hurricane, or other natural disaster occurs, there's a well-defined process for requesting help from other trained responders when the capabilities of the impacted jurisdiction are overwhelmed. The mutual aid, I agree to help you and you agree to help me concept, is foundational in the nation's emergency response construct. But what happens when the disaster isn't the destruction of wood and concrete? It's an intentional attack on a state or local agency, causing the loss of data, lack of system control, and potentially impacting the public's well-being. Do the same institutional frameworks apply, and are the necessary resources available to lend a hand? Eric Rossner is the Deputy Branch Chief of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, with the Department of Homeland Security, and he examines what role each level of government should play in protecting against and responding to a significant cyber incident. His research concludes that state and local governments have an important role in cyber preparedness and incident response, but many lack the necessary capabilities to do so. One of the biggest contributing challenges is the lack of a trained workforce. Before we got going, Eric reminded me that his answers are his own and do not reflect those of his agency. He started by describing the cyber threat landscape. Every year, the Director of National Intelligence releases a report called the Worldwide Threat Assessment. In the past few years, cyber has been at the top of that list as the greatest threat to the nation. At the same time, every year, FEMA releases the National Preparedness Report. And almost every year, without fail, the number one gap in capabilities at the state and local level is cybersecurity. So we realize that it is our greatest threat, and we also realize that it's our where we have the least capabilities. It is definitely a huge gap. So we know that we have nation states that are attacking us every day. We have hacktivists that are hacking for political purposes. If they disagree with what a government does, they'll deface their website. We have cyber crimes for financial purposes. You know, people are actually stealing money out of people's bank accounts or, you know, nations are actually using it to fund some of their own operations, ransomware. So we have a wide array of actors and an unlimited surface area for attack. Most often, and now I'm quoting directly from your thesis, state and local governments are the first line of defense, especially if the cyber incident affects public services or critical infrastructure. How prepared are they to respond? Some states are more prepared than others. Some states have put more resources towards cybersecurity than others. 
I'm sure all wish they could do more and are continuing to do more. In my paper, one of the things I went through was the Pell Center actually created a criteria for, it's the state of the state cybersecurity. And basically outlining seven or eight different categories, trying to rank from strategy to incident response capabilities, all of these different things and saying, as a state satisfactory in this, then great. If not, then that's a gap. And that's kind of how they would rate how well the states are doing, and every state has their gaps. Are there any commonalities across those states, some type of similar barrier that they're all facing? I would say information sharing is always a challenge. You only are as good as the the data that you're receiving. You know, we understand from a holistic perspective the, the kinds of people that are doing it, but we don't necessarily know where there's a vulnerability in specific system. So if you're, let's say, the financial sector, if you are getting attacked and have a certain vulnerability, it's likely that similar organizations are going to get the same attack. You know, so how do we get all of this information? Because it's coming from a million different directions. How do you figure out what's the important information? How do you get it to the right people? And how do you get it to them in time that they can do something about it? When a private sector organization or a government organization has an attack coming towards them, how are they responding when, as you just described, they have some of these shortages of investment so they don't have the capabilities? They can hire outside firms. They can certainly reach out to CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency that I work for. We interact with state and local governments every day, trying to unify these these efforts and minimize these gaps. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of collaboration across the different levels of government. When there are significant events that take place in the nation, we're in COVID right now, but we often think about hurricanes and fires. Being a local jurisdiction, I may not have all the resources I need. And when I put my hand up and say, I need more, I go to the state. The state goes to see if they can find it. And if they can't, then they go to the federal government. That's for a physical, natural disaster. Does anything like that exist on the cyber side? States definitely are, have their own capabilities and are doing things on their own. And the federal government can come in beforehand with different preparedness efforts so we can do training exercises, vulnerability assessments, threat assessments. We can share information ahead of time. Kind of what I was getting with it, my thesis is that it's so scattered. It's getting better every day, but it's so scattered for, or not enough unity of effort because every state is so different. And in some ways it's good. Like we saw with elections that the scattered ways that we handle our elections, our infrastructure, makes it very difficult to attack and cause mass chaos because every system is so separate, but it also makes it more difficult to organize our efforts and improve our security. So the very point about economies of scale and that we don't have it because we're so different actually end up being a benefit to us because it makes it more difficult for someone to come in and do the attack. It limits the interconnectivity. You know, it's not like it's they're attacking um, one system, like when OPM was attacked, that was one system that had a treasure trove of data. Here, if you attack one state government, and, and I'm in Virginia, so if you attack one town in Virginia, you're not necessarily going to even be able to affect anything in a town 10 miles away, depending on what their infrastructure is. So it, it is a, a benefit in, in that regard. The annual assessments have, for years, cited this as a gap, cybersecurity capacity. 
So the federal government, the presidents have come out with successive policy directives outlining the U.S. cyber coordination for federal agencies and the private sector. But that doesn't necessarily cover the state and to the locals. You propose a framework in your thesis, cyber federalism, as a way for agencies to work together. So what is that and what is it designed to do? The federal government outlined a whole series of executive orders and directives, a couple of the big ones, Presidential Policy Directive 8, PPD 21. So we're talking about national preparedness, uh, critical infrastructure, security and resilience, and then PPD 41, which is cyber incident response coordination at the federal level. These are directives from the president to the executive branch. So that's pretty clear cut what, what our directives are. It's a lot more complicated in dealing with state and local governments. We have the supremacy clause that says that state laws cannot conflict with federal law. But then at the same time, we have the 10th Amendment that says states have the authority to make their own laws. So it's that balance. I think it makes sense. It's a great balance that you want to have some power at the state level, some power at the federal level. But there is that conflict when it comes to security. Do we want to force states to do certain things? My thesis argued that I don't think we should force them to, to do anything because there's different needs depending on the state. New York might have very different needs, especially with New York City, than Nebraska. So it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. There are going to be commonalities, and that's why I think when there are commonalities, we should push for incentivizing. You focus on cyber incidents that impact public services and critical infrastructure. A lot of critical infrastructure is owned by the private sector. How are they looped into or part of your framework? That's an, a complicated issue because first we have to demonstrate that there's value. State and local governments shouldn't be regulating as much as proving to the private sector that there's value. As you've said, the private sector owns a lot of the critical infrastructure. There's a lot of incentive for them to keep it secure because they can't make money if they are not running. So there should be an incentive there. We just have to prove that whatever this framework is that they're getting value out of it. And a lot of times it has to going back to information sharing. It's making sure that the information sharing loop is fast enough and gets enough information that is of value that everyone involved is, is getting value out of their relationships. The threat is ever present and the potential societal and economic impacts are significant. Are there any best practices for the engagement of other groups? There's definitely certain best practices that you can take to secure your own systems. Sometimes as simple as making sure that employees, their access to different parts of the system are compartmentalized so that not everyone can get into everything. Or if you have an employee that leaves, that they lose their access so they can't come back and you know, insider threat is a significant problem. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, have a best practices and frameworks for risk management, and they're widely accepted and used throughout the nation. Private sector, public sector, you know, it was a collaborative effort to create these frameworks, and I think that they're used by all members of society. So there are definitely best practices in place. The issue is going to be, do people have the resources to implement these best practices? Because it's expensive. And so when you say, to a, a small business, here is the long list of things you can do to improve your cybersecurity. They're going to say, I barely have enough money to you know, do the basics and break even. I'm, I don't have the resources. 
So it's prioritizing what's the most important, or it could be that they just don't take it seriously at all until something happens and they hope that something doesn't happen. The federal government requires departments to conduct an information risk assessment based on the NIST framework you mentioned. Are state and local governments required to do the same thing? That would be on a state-by-state basis. The federal government doesn't mandate. They certainly encourage, and they can help facilitate the, the assessments, but do not believe that the federal government can mandate any of that. This gets to the supremacy clause because of the interconnection between local, state, and federal governments, between our economies. Should the federal government step in and say more directly, you will do this because of the national impact that could happen with a significant cyber incident? I do think that there is room for, I don't want to say regulation. I think that our relationships with the state and local governments are good enough that we don't have to make them do things. I think the state and local governments understand the threat and they see it every day. I mean, they're getting hit every day. So they understand the issue. I don't think that we need the stick. I think enough of a carrot would would suffice. But I I do think that more standardization and increased assessment would benefit everybody. FEMA often requires local jurisdictions meet certain requirements to be eligible for their assistance. Could something like that be used to create the incentivization for states to then follow on on the cyber side? As one of my recommendations mentioned that we should increase our grant funding to state and local governments. FEMA gives millions, if not billions of dollars in grant money every year. And very little of that is for cybersecurity, a decimal point. You know, it's very, very small. I definitely think that should increase. You know, the money can't go wherever they want it to go. It has to come with some kind of structure to it to make sure it's going to cybersecurity. But I definitely think that we should be increasing. I know in the past, the amount of money spent for counterterrorism compared to cybersecurity is, I mean, it's incomparable. It's millions and billions versus hundreds of thousands, maybe. So it's, it's a huge difference. And it seems that the, the threat of cyber attacks just continues to increase, but the, the resources are not matching that. One of the important parts for our electeds to appreciate the change in threat environment and aligning the resources for preparedness to that. 9-11 may still be so ingrained in many people's heads as opposed to what is in the cyber world and is coming at us every day. There needs to be a balance. We, as our director of national intelligence has said, cybersecurity is our one of our biggest threats, if not our biggest threat. You know, we're seeing with with COVID right now that if you focus too much of your energy on one threat and you're not balancing the needs of the other threats, that it can come back to hurt you. And if you don't have the resources in place, then you're scrambling after the fact. We haven't had that cyber 9/11 or Pearl Harbor or whatever you want to call it, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And if we are prepared ahead of time, then the consequences won't be as high if it does happen. You make two additional recommendations, prioritizing investment at the state and local level and also cyber education. Tell me about the confidence gap and the prioritization at the local level. As part of my thesis, I'm saying that the state and local governments should have greater capabilities and should do more so that the focus for the federal government is more on these higher significant level threats, nation states and things of that nature. But as part of that, there's a significant gap in the workforce. The number of cybersecurity professionals does not meet the need of the actual threat now and definitely does not meet according to 
my thesis proposal of increasing this workforce and pushing a lot of it down to the state and local level, it would just, it would not be possible. So my suggestion and my recommendation was to increase education at all levels. We could increase training in the workforce. That would help a little bit. We could increase at the collegiate levels and master's programs, and that would help a little bit as well. But really, if we want to get the problem solved, we need to start at the earliest levels. The other countries are taking steps to train their kids all the way from kindergarten to through 12th grade. Uh, and we're doing a little bit of that. My proposal was that we should be doing a lot more of it because this is not a threat that's going to go away. It's going to get worse. And we want to help alleviate this problem. We need to start at the root cause, which is we're not getting enough people trained and able to help. Truly, this is a generational investment in order to prepare us to deal with what we have right now and then what is going to be coming in the future as the world continues to get more connected, more online, more Internet of Things. We need people that have that mindset of how to prepare and deal with these expanding and adapting attackers. We are getting better every day. Cybercom has existed for a little bit, but is has just recently been separated and elevated so that they can build up that infrastructure for that organization. It's so new in the in the government that we're going to get better really quickly, but it's going to take decades to build up the way that we are prepared for physical attacks. Our police force has generations of experience. Our military has generations of experience. We know how to go to war and fight. Do we have enough resources and enough people that know what to do when we're fighting a virtual war? You conducted your research a few years ago. Do you have any thoughts on what has come to pass since then? I think that it's interesting having this discussion now as opposed to right at after I wrote it, a lot of what I wrote then is slowly starting to take shape in reality. It wasn't revolutionary. It's common sense that we're doing this in other fields. You know, if you have a police officer and a firefighter doing it one way and handling the small things, you don't necessarily need to bring in the FBI and FEMA for every small thing. That's the balance of power at the state and local levels and the federal government. It seemed like a natural thing that would happen eventually, and it's starting to slowly happen, And I, but I do think it's going to continue. Uh, the National Guard's going to play probably an increased role. The threat can be very big very quickly, so you want to be able to surge, but you don't necessarily need to always have those resources there. So how do you figure out how do you maintain a steady state operation, but also surge forces quickly in a workforce that doesn't have a lot of people sitting around doing nothing. You know, they're in demand. It's going to be interesting to see five years from now or three years from now how, how this looks different, but I think it's going to continue to trend towards these directions. With the federal having cyber resources, the states through the National Guard may have other cyber responders available when something comes up. Those are military organizations. Is that the right place for that capability, or should it be in a more civilian agency? We're still trying to feel our way out with that, because you obviously DOD cannot operate on U.S. soil. But at the same time, there's a lot of capabilities there. So a big part of what the federal government side is trying to do is figure out where is that balance where we can utilize the resources and the capabilities and the information that all of these different agencies within the Department of Defense can give to us and give to the states, but they can't do it directly. The law prohibits it. So 
can CISA be the conduit? Can we get the information and work with state and locals be that conduit to make sure the information is still getting to the people that need it without without the, the chance of DOD overstepping their bounds? DOD wants to help, and so that's going to be one way where they can do it, is through us, through the FBI, through these other agencies. You came in with a law degree and a master's degree. Someone may say, I don't have those things. I'm not going to apply for this program. What would you say to a prospective applicant? I would say they tell you very early on that you are not in the class because you have the most achievements. They are looking for a diverse class that can have a robust discussion. So obviously they want people with experiences, but they want people with unique experiences. They want a dynamic where there's going to be conversation and maybe arguments friendly arguments, but they, they don't want everyone to be on the same page. They don't want everyone to agree on the same thing. And I think certainly in our class, that was the case. We had a lot of lively discussions, which is, I think, exactly what they wanted. So I would say to applicants, don't think that you need to have a certain level of education or not have a certain level of education to apply. And when you're applying, don't think of it as just throwing your resume down and saying, look at all these great things I've done. You want to demonstrate how you, you're unique from others and what value you would provide to the class. As the interview wound down, Eric said it was interesting to have our discussion a few years after he did his research because he's seeing some of his predictions become reality. In particular, the challenges maintaining steady-state readiness and the ability to surge in a resource-constrained environment. To defend against these attacks, government agencies need people with the right skills and experience but often struggle to attract and retain talent when competing with the private sector. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Eric Rossner's thesis, Cyber Federalism, Defining Cyber's Jurisdictional Boundaries. To read a copy, browse to the Homeland Security Digital Library and search for Rossner Cybersecurity. CHDS is the nation's Homeland Security Educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future Homeland Security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.